This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Timothy Brooke, professor of history at the University of British Columbia. Most recently, Dr. Brooke is the co-editor of Sacred Mandates, Asian International Relations Since Chinggis Khan, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. Dr. Brooke, thank you for talking with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. This podcast has had a number of historians and literature scholars of Japan specifically, and we haven't really talked about the perspective of the major restoration from outside of Japan. And You've published widely on, on Chinese history from the 17th century all the way up to the 20th century. And so I, I was hoping you might be able to talk about the view of the restoration from Chinese history. I'm not going to be able to give you a very clear idea of how did Chinese at the time think of the Meiji Restoration. But what I can do is, from the point of view of where we sit today, look back and say, what was it that was happening in Japan that affected China and how did China react? There are a number of places to go with this. One, there's a kind of standard comparative setup that we used to do in our lectures, and I think we still do, in which we look at the the young samurai who led the Meiji Restoration. It was a new leadership. They were not tied to the traditional interests that had been ruling through through the Tokugawa period. And it meant that there was, there was a possibility of kind of re, reorganizing entirely the way in which the state functioned. And traditionally, in kind of broad introductory lectures, we contrast that with China, where there were attempts by younger elites marginalized elites to come to the center to take over and redirect where things were going, and that they continually failed, um, and failed all the way down then to the 19th revolution, at which point China is in considerable difficulty, and a single elite does not emerge to galvanize the country the way that that early Meiji elite somehow was able to pull that off. So looking at this as a historian, the, the traditional narrative has been that there was a kind of lost opportunity here. Uh, for China. There was an attempt in 1895. There were attempts in the first decade of the 20th century, but there was never a, a, a moment at which China was able to, well, that a, a different elite was able to move forward to, to change the, the way in which things were going. That narrative, I think, is still pretty much in place, but it's become a little more complicated. First of all, the established elites of the Qing dynasty were actually paying attention to what was going on in Japan. And they were attempting to do some of the things that the Meiji Restoration Group were doing, such as trying to develop an early industrialization policy, trying to build up the military. There were, China was responding in many of the ways in which Japan was responding. But Japan had a number of benefits China didn't. Japan had a kind of buffer the isolationism of the Tokugawa period meant that the onslaught of the commercial and military West didn't happen until the 1850s and 1860s. In China, this was already happening 50 years earlier. And China, I think, had been, well, the, the colonial interests, the, the European colonial interests were much more forward in China than they were in Japan. So Japan had a kind of waiting period in which Japan could watch what's going on in China and almost figure out when the Western imperialists come to us, what are we going to do? That's maybe giving them too much wisdom in hindsight. But there, there was this, this buffer of, of 30, 40 years that I think made a big difference. But also you have to, you have to, 
factor in the, the interests of the European powers. The, China was a large market, and particularly as the opium trade expanded rapidly through the first half of the 19th century, there was an enormous market there to capture. Japan represented a much smaller market. So I think the, the imperial powers were less interested in trying to do something in Japan. That also, that's the second reason why I think Japan, in a sense, had an easier time of it than China did. That the, the pressures from the European powers for concessions, for treaty ports, and all that sort of thing, was much lighter. So there was a, there was this buffer of 30 or 40 years, and there was also this sense that it was a smaller market and perhaps a less important market in terms of, of global circulations. So that made a difference. That said, politics in China were extremely... Involuted isn't, isn't the right world, but it was a small group within the elite kind of going round and round with each other through the 1890s and the early 1900s. And it was very difficult to... For, for a new vision to come forward, and particularly a new new set of proposals for the institutional change that, that had to happen to make the difference. If we move in a little bit more closely to, to the particulars of the 1880s and 1890s, Japan was pushing very hard to change its relationship with Qing, China. There was the incident of the fishermen on the Taiwan coast who were murdered, and then that became a, an, an opening for Japan politically to push against the Qing and to test the waters in terms of Qing control of Taiwan. Uh, they're doing the same thing in Korea. And it's very much to try and over, I won't say overturn the, the relationship with the Qing, but to put it on some kind of a new footing. This is something that um, I and my co-authors in, in the new book we just brought out, Sacred Mandates, try we try to get a handle on this because up until the 19th century, the, the Chinese tributary system was one of the modes in which international relations was conducted. Japan was supposed to be part of that system, but only supposed because uh, the Tokugawa were not going to play that game. The Tokugawa, um, I mean, the, the whole thing about the Tokugawa closing the country, it was really, we talk about that as closing the country to the West. But really, it was closing the country to the Chinese tributary system. Nonetheless, they needed, they needed systems of exchange. So there was trade with China through the Ryukyus, through Korea, so that when this uh, a kind of new system of diplomatic exchange arrives with the coming of the West in the second half of the 19th century, I think Japanese politicians were very astute at thinking, all right, how do we make use of the new norms of diplomatic exchange to strengthen our hand vis-a-vis -vis the Qing. Now, the Qing weren't completely obtuse to what was going on, so that uh, they too were trying to, as they were learning the new diplomatic norms coming from the West, they were trying to figure out how do we use this to strengthen our position, to strengthen our tradition, well, our traditional suzerainty over Korea, our direct control of Taiwan. How do we, how do we use the new norms to simply replicate what we asserted through the old norms. But the Japanese politicians who were involved in negotiating the treaties that ended up being signed were perhaps better informed about what the whole treaty process was, what the new di diplomatic norms were going to be. And on the Chinese side, I think Chinese negotiators didn't see, they couldn't see what the end game of a lot of this was. So the session of Taiwan... And then the inroads in Korea. These, these are the rulers of the Qing are playing this 
more or less as though the old tributary system still applied. And of course, it didn't apply anywhere, least of all to Koreans. I mean, Koreans were, there was this point in the 1880s and 1890s where the Koreans thought, ah, the coming of the Western diplomatic regime gives us an opportunity to step away from the Qing. But then Japan is right there to move in and exploit, exploit that moment. It's a very brief moment in the, uh, in the, really in the late 1880s, 1890s, when Koreans begin to think about establishing themselves as a state on a par with the other major players of East Asia. And then the Japanese move in very quickly. And it's played in the textbooks as sort of uh, China losing its dominance over the tributary system and such. This is much more complicated than that. Koreans were very much actors in this whole process, but they got outplayed by the Japanese, and they're also completely outplayed militarily. I mean, part of the, not the immediate success, but the sort of mid, uh, mid-term success of the Tokugawa is their effective use of military power. So that it's not entirely just setting up a new set of institutional norms, conforming to the standards that are coming out of the new the Westphalian international order and somehow doing it all right. This is done very much as a military exploit. And uh, maybe that's sometimes left out of the story. And in that regard, frankly, the Japanese do it very well. They develop an effective navy. They develop an effective modern army. The casualties in their conflicts with the Chinese and later with the Russians at the beginning of the 20th century, the casualties are appalling. So this is a, um, this is a, a new regime bent on asserting itself aggressively onto the Chinese mainland and onto any other pieces of territory that it can get. And I'm raising this because we tend to then kind of go half a century downstream and say, well, Japan adapted very well, China adapted very poorly, China fell into warlordism, Japan became a a very competent state. And the competency of the Japanese state isn't in question. But the fact that it was done through military means, which had in some sense the, um, it was reor- the, the military was reorganized along kind of Western military models. But in other ways, and this is probably a misuse of the term, it was a very feudal organization. And the farm boys who were dragooned into this were slaughtered in vast numbers in order to carry this out. So I think sometimes, and I, I say this because of the period in which I've worked most closely on in this history is the 1930s, when Japan becomes a a fully militarized state and turns its attention to China. And that doesn't just come out of nowhere. I mean, the, the Japanese capacity to use military means to intervene has been building up for decades. So that military occupation of China in 1937, 38 becomes a kind of continuation of what's been building for several, for several decades. I was thinking about it as you're talking about this kind of head start that Japan gets. It is true that Japan kind of got lucky in that the Western imperialists were all interested in get, wanting to get to China. In fact, Perry, when he comes to Japan, he's actually trying to get to China. Yes. Japan is kind of seen as a stopping point. Uh, but you're talking about these these common historical textbook narratives. And, mm-hmm. and of course, the, the way that the restoration is seen in Japan in relation to China 
As you were saying, China's kind of the old man of Asia. Japan's the new young nation that modernizes very quickly, westernizes very quickly. And this is why they eventually defeat China in 1895. And I think that's been kind of picked up in some of the English language historiography a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's perfectly understandable because, in fact, the, the Meiji leadership came up with a very plausible and appealing narrative so that young Japanese growing up in the 1880s and 1890s can be very proud of what they're doing. And, you know, there, there are all the great writers like Fukuzawa Yukichi or who are telling stories that are immensely appealing, but also have the ring of a kind of objective truth to them at the same time. And so Japanese are kind of swept into this very effectively. China doesn't have a compelling counter-narrative during this period. There have been the embarrassments of the Opium Wars, the 1840s and 1850s, the Taiping Rebellion, 1850s, early 1860s. China's had many difficulties to deal with. So there, there isn't a clear narrative to say, this is where China is going. This is a vision for the future. Whereas Japanese have that. And that was probably very effective in mobilizing Japanese to buy into this almost effortless shift of Japan going from a nation that is kind of reestablishing itself in the new system to becoming an imperialistic project. And that feels almost effortless as, you're, as you go through the early decades of the 20th century watching what happens. And I think that story is, has, has kind of carried on in, in our understanding and in the way in which the textbooks tell the story. And then another narrative is that the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895, when Japan defeats China, and kind of destabilizes the entire region and kind of initiates a whole new wave of imperialism in East Asia, where now China is starting to get carved up. Yeah. But now Japan is also a very aggressive player in this new imperialism. Yes, and the, 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 the proof of that comes in with the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, when eight foreign powers go in and impose a military um, occupation of the region around Beijing, and Japan is one of the eight. So it's, uh, I know this is a, a point of pride of in, in the Japanese nationalist discourse, obviously, but it just, it created, there was a world audience to all of this, and it created a vision of China as backward, corrupt, old, this, this, these, these narratives of old versus young um, are very strong and very appealing. And so in 1900, the West looked at East Asia and they said, the Japanese are with us, the Chinese are hopeless. And it, it in that way, gave Japan also a kind of free ride through the, the, the discussions at the end of the First World War in Versailles, kind of gave them a free ride down even into the 1930s, when finally the League of Nations decides maybe there's things going on out here that we want to take a closer look at. And you were talking about how the occupation of China in 37, uh, 38, the, the beginning of all-out war there, you know, if we kind of start pushing that date earlier and earlier, you know, where mm -hmm. did this begin? You know, some people might say, well, look at Hideyoshi in the 16th century. <laughs> He's eventually trying to evade China, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the parallel is purely formal. I, I, don't think, I don't think it's particularly helpful. In fact, it's probably an unhelpful parallel because what Hideyoshi was trying to do was set up trade relations with China 
but not have to do it through the tributary system. So he was trying to capture the, 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 Korean, the, the Korean position in the tributary system without becoming a tributary of China. So Hideyoshi was playing within the, the, the rubric of the, of the tributary system. What the Meiji people were doing was saying, we are going to now step right out of that system and impose a different one that allows us to be an equal with China. And I, I don't think Japan in, in the Tokugawa period is trying to say we are, we are going to make ourselves the hegemonic power of East Asia and China will be our supplicant. I think their idea was that China and Japan were going to be equal powers. Now, in fact, it slips forward into the 20th century. This then slips forward, and by the 1930s, you get apologists in Japan saying, well, Japan has got to lead the way, and China, China's a basket case, and so we have to become the big brother to China. But I think in the 19th century, that idea is not there yet. All they're doing is saying, we are a state equal with every other state in the world, and we are now an equal of China, and China's going to have to get over its superiority complex and deal with us one-to-one. -one. And, you know, some Chinese statesmen kind of recognize this. The negotiations in 1895, the negotiations in 1905, there was a kind of understanding on the Chinese side that the game had changed. But these transition moments are very difficult for parties involved because we have to remember that when you're standing there in 1895, you don't know what's coming in the next 50 years. You don't know how the world is changing. And I think there was some hope among some Chinese elites that somehow the old system would, would after all of this turmoil, the system would settle down and, and could continue the way it was, it was going. There were signs that this might be possible. I mean, the, the Qing was watching the British Empire, was thinking and was watching the Russian Empire, but the Qing did not anticipate that Japan could become an empire. So the Qing was really, in the 19th century, the Qing was willing to imagine a world of empires in which its sphere of influence would remain intact. There would be contacts with the British, but that they would try and draw the line between where the British Empire was going to come into this area and where it was not. But I think they did not anticipate that Japan would also assume imperial status. So we might not be able to draw a straight line all the way back from 1931 to Hideyoshi, but if we were to draw that line somewhere, I mean, you were saying 1895, Sino-Japanese War, mm -hmm. it's maybe a different thing. That's the establishment of a new East Asia regional order. What about the 21 demands of 1914? Can we point to that as maybe the beginning of, an, of a kind of Japanese aspiration for territorial conquest in China? Yes, yes. I think that's that would be exactly the place. That's where the founding propositions of the Japanese empire are laid out for the first time. It's at that point. And by 1919, everybody on both sides of the East China Sea sees what's afoot, I think. And maybe it took the First World War for that actually to move forward and become operational. I'm not sure. This is not something I've ever, I've ever looked at. But it would be interesting to, to know more about how China and Japan reacted to World War I. Chinese generally were appalled. The Chinese intellectuals were appalled by World War I and the carnage. Mm -hmm. My sense is that this was not the same issue for Japanese intellectuals. Japanese intellectuals began to understand what a highly militarized, mobilized state could do. And Perhaps, perhaps it was, it was without the World War I, perhaps things wouldn't have played out 
as aggressively on the Japanese side as they did through the 1910s. There's been debate about this in Japanese historiography as well. I mean, as far back as James Crowley talking about Japan's quest for autonomy, mm -hmm. Michael Barnhart talking about the kind of desire to secure autarky. The lesson of World War I for Japan being that Germany lost in the war primarily because it was strangled to death and couldn't right. maintain possession of the sources of raw materials. So if Japan wanted to keep the empire running, it needed right. to have its own right. kind of sources. And so China then uh, was that source. But then there's, other, there's been other people who have said, well, the 21 demands, this was Japan trying to play the world system kind of trying to play the, the kind of European-style British mm -hmm. imperialism mm -hmm. of treaty imperialism. Yeah. And maybe we shouldn't see that as just kind of a blatant land grab. Do you have thoughts on that? I'm going to dodge that question a bit, <laughs> just because it's not something that I, I've really worked on closely. I mean, my sense, my sense of this is that we have to remember that European, the early European trading economies of the 15th and 16th centuries Engaged in colonialism in some parts of the world and not in others. So Spain takes over the Philippines, colonizes it very directly. But China is never colonized. Japan is never colonized. And by the 20th century, the idea of setting up new colonies, um, colonies are expensive. And the British were always in a panic about not, it's, it's odd. We think of the British Empire somehow going out and creating this great this great colonial empire with colonies all over the world. But back at Whitehall, British politicians were in a panic about not acquiring more colonies. What they were trying to do is create beachheads throughout the world economy so that Britain could trade effectively in the world economy. But there are so many other counter, counter, uh, counter examples going on at the moment. The United States taking over the West. Canada taking over the West. I mean, that, that's massive colonization is happening through the second half of the 19th century. So Japan is watching what's going on out there in the world and how they factor all those in. I, I don't know. It's a very complicated, it's a complicated picture. And I'm sure uh, some Japanese commentators were looking at how the colonial empires were expanding. Others were probably thinking about how the more less colonial and more mercantilist empires operated. The matter of taking over land in China was a huge break in anything in, in the China-Japan relationship. And I would like to, I, I, I don't know, I would like to see the research that, that could show us year by year, step by step, how the idea of establishing colonies on the mainland developed. And perhaps that scholarship is there, I'm just not familiar with it. And certainly from 1928, the assassination of Zhang Suolian, there does seem to be the, the same kind. If we, if we think of the earlier aspirations of, of going into Korea and yeah. all of this discourse about Korea as a political vacuum waiting to be taken over by some European power. And if we want to yeah. defend ourselves, we have to go in and take it ourselves. Right. And Which was an entirely a self-serving kind, kind, self of, kind of uh, ideology. The Koreans were there and would have been quite happy to fill their own vacuum. There was no vacuum. One of the questions I ask a lot of the guests on the podcast is, is keeping in mind this is the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration, and kind of using that moment to reflect on Japanese history in the long durée. 
what is the meaning of the Meiji Restoration, and what are some lessons we can learn about Japan 150 years later. If we were to look at that kind of big picture view of Japan and China in East Asia, and you were talking before about how after the Restoration, Japan tries to dismantle a China-centric order, and temporarily anyway succeeds in establishing a more Japan-centric one. Are we getting to the point now, post-economic bubble in Japan, where we see China on the rise? Has China regained this China-centric East Asian order? This is a subject in, on which many people like to weigh in, and I try to, to, to stand <laughs> back from this one. Um, it, it, it's certainly a fact that, that China's uh, economic growth in the last 30 years or should I put it, the way in which the world has brought China into the world economy has created a very powerful state there with a, with a remarkable degree of ideological unity, which is curious because there is China has no ideology anymore other than nationalism, but there's a great deal of unity around that. So China is a, is a large, powerful and economically capable state. The question for the future is how Japan and China are going to deal with this because Japan's military response to China in the early 20th century was not helpful in any way and led, to, led as much to the destruction of Japan as it did anything else. Japan's economic capacity after 1945 has been noteworthy and I don't see that capacity actually dwindling. The effectiveness of a trading nation is not how big its army is, it's how, how intelligently it can make use of the resources it has access to in order to build economic relations around the world. Now, I think there's been a, an unfortunate invocation of wartime atrocities on the Chinese, uh, by the Chinese, to try and beat down Japanese claims or Japanese, even Japanese negotiations over legitimate economic interests or economic benefits. And I think that's a sign that China is trying to expand its influence in the region. And it leaves Japan in this very awkward position because uh, I don't think that bringing up atrocities committed uh, 70 years ago is at all helpful for building future relations of any sort, diplomatic, economic, or whatever. And the fact that one player has been doing that to another indicates a kind of bullying that does not bode well for for the future. So I think some people in China feel that Japan has to has to take a secondary position. Well, of course, Japan is always going to be secondary to China, given just the size of its economy. Canada is never going to bully the United States economically, and Japan cannot expect to bully China economically. Conversely, however, that requires that there be a an understanding of what the liberal international order is about, such that the United States is not bullying Canada and China is not bullying Japan. But working that out is not going to be easy. Each is competing for primary position in various ways and it's going to be, there is going to be much misunderstanding over the next 10 or 20 years as China figures out how to be a major international power. And my, my slight worry is that they're going to use beating Japan as a way to figure out how to, how to achieve that prominence in, in East Asia. In the long run, there's going to have to be a kind of re, I think there's going to be a realignment among 
all of the other states of East Asia besides China. Because if you look at all of the states on China's borders or facing China across water, not one of them is enthusiastic about what China is doing at the moment. And so I think to some extent, all of the other nations of East Asia are going to have to help China become a responsible member of the world community. And I think Japan, the Japanese or the, the Japanese government is capable of doing this under the right leadership. And perhaps Japanese need to think a little bit more about what appropriate political leadership in Japan is going to look like in order to then help Japan negotiate with all the other East Asian nations some kind of um, a less anxious international situation than we have today. So we talk about a political revolution that brings a new group of leaders into power who is unable to foster the sense of national unity through nationalism, instigate industrialization, new types of economic growth, leads into territorial expansion and acquisition. I mean, we could be talking about Meiji Restoration, or we could talk to, be talking about China after right. 1949. Right, and so there, there, there are lessons to be learned about what Japan did uh, to become this kind of great nation that became an empire. And one of those lessons is that it's not a good thing to do. It leads to conflict, it leads to war, it leads to violence, and it leads to the pushing of politics to the far right. So this is why, I mean, it's hard to sit here in 2018 and talk about sober minds prevailing when the leaderships around the world are being seized by far-right political opportunists who have no difficulty invoking violence as a way to solve a problem. So these are difficult times we are finding ourselves in. And I'm going to put it this way. I think China needs Japan's help to sort out what the future of the Japan-China relationship will be. And I think China has not asked for that help, with perhaps some justifiable reasons, for decades. But as long as China is trying to settle some old score, China is not going to be able to negotiate a position for itself that is comfortable for its neighbors. And because Japan has had the terrible experience of becoming an empire, I think there are lessons that uh, the Chinese government could learn. But the current government in China is not disposed to learning that lesson at the moment. The only way it's going to learn it is if the rest of the nations of East Asia figure out how to take the high road and maintain some kind of sustainable international order in East Asia. And it's something actually that the East Asian nations need to do. I don't think we in the West, the United States, can dictate what the terms of, nor, nor I think should Russia be dictating how this, this works out. This is something that the nations of East Asia have to work out amongst themselves. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.